I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman back for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. Today we are going to talk about Corey's latest 2022 NHL Draft Rankings with a new top challenger to Shane Wright. We're going to talk about the Frulunda Hockey Club in Sweden. I went and spent some time over there and wrote a story for our website this week. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about development and kind of what has made them, what's allowed them to have three top ten picks in the last four years. And then we got a really good mailbag section today with some good stuff that covers all kinds of topics in there. So it should be a really good show. But I think we got to start with with your 2022 draft rankings, Corey, because uh, really that's what everybody cares about. Yeah. No, I mean, I I thought it was a good time to put one out right after the CHL game was over, um, that we have the, the U18 World Championships and the CHL playoffs coming up. Things are probably going to change, particularly after the U18 Worlds, but it's going to be our first real CHL playoffs in two years. And th- those really can impact a, p- a player's draft ranking. I, I remember uh, going back to the last CHL playoffs, the one that Bowen Byron played in, in the WHL playoffs, where he was just so dominant and firmly established himself as a top five pick uh, through there. After a regular season where he was very good, but probably wasn't as good as you thought he was going to be. So I'll be really curious to see, see, you know, can Shane Wright just take over a playoff series? Can Kingston beat Hamilton? There are other things that you can go through. You know, does win a, can Winnipeg beat the Oil Kings? Those are those are interesting questions that I'll be curious to see how those things transpire over the next few months. But before that happens, this is kind of an update of where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big uh, item at the very top, I guess, would be something that we we had talked about uh, on this podcast previously, coming out of the Olympics. Yuri Slavkovsky had an outstanding Olympic tournament. Um, and fittingly, you moved him up into the same tier as Shane Wright, not above him. You still have him slotted at number two, but he's now in that tier. And I guess my question to you would be, uh, when you talk to NHL scouts in NHL circles, how big of a challenger now um, do teams see Slavkovsky as for that number one pick? I don't think a majority of people would say he's going to push right out of the spot. I think almost everybody I talk to still thinks Shane Wright is the first pick. But I do think there is a growing pool of thought that that the gap has closed 
And if the gap is that close, I think they're going to take the center and they look to his history of production. And even though he hasn't produced at any elite level this year, I think teams that I've talked to still see what he's done over the last three years and see an elite prospect. And the fact that Slavkovsky, at least other than international play, like the Holinka, the World Juniors, and the Olympics, had, didn't really have an amazing year with his clubs, is, is a variable that keeps him from being able to firmly push right out of the one spot. That being said, Slavkovsky has been on a good run of late. After he came back from the Olympics, there was like a stretch there where he scored in four straight Liga games. Uh, in the playoffs the other day, he had he had a two-point game with a, with a goal. It's, it's not a first overall, second overall type of statistical performance for a, a first-year draft eligible in, in, in Liga. But he's still coming on lately to kind of buoy off the, the great Olympics he had. And I think with him, it's less statistics and more tools. I think you look at a 6'4 guy who can skate, he has skill, he can make plays, he, uh, he, can, he can shoot the puck. I, you know, I, I see why you know, so many people around the league are excited about him. I'm really excited about him. I think this is a guy who has you know, star potential. You know, he remind you covered the comp for him. I always think of is as a player you covered there for a few years. Like he reminds me of Anthony Mantha, maybe yep. a little bit more competitive Anthony Mantha because that's always kind of been the, the issue with Mantha, uh, and maybe less so with this guy. And so I, I see that, and I see a guy who can be a first line, first power play, twenty five, thirty goal scoring winger in the National Hockey League. Well, I, I think what you said about the, the skills and the, or the sorry the production versus the tools is, is is the defining thing with him. But that's where when he came out of the Olympics, I think we even said it on this show. If he comes out of the Olympics and keeps this up, you probably feel a little better about that whole thing because you, you just wanted some production to back up the tools to to kind of validate what your eyes told you this guy's capable of doing. And to his credit, really since the Olympics, he has had the production that that suits a guy who's going to go in this range. It doesn't erase what happened in the first half of the year, but you see him, he comes back with some confidence and and now the points do start coming at the level that I would say more closely matches kind of this ranking on the tools. Yeah. And like I said, among teams I talked to, he's firmly a top five guy. And I, I hear ranges on that from firmly top, you know, he's two, he's three. He could be some have him a little bit lower than that. And I've had a minority of scouts say they would take him over right. A small minority, but but a, but a minority. So I, he's he's in that debate, and he's really been the only guy in this draft who's had the season that can challenge right. Because yeah. Wright didn't have the amazing season, but he is a great player with an amazing track record. Uh, nobody else like Logan Cooley's a great player. Simon Nemitz, Jerry Yerichek, the the Winnipeg kids, they're they're, they're great players. But they didn't have the elite season that would elevate them to that level. Whereas Slavkovsky, at least in isolated moments, to go with the elite toolkit, has done enough to at least put himself into the conversation. You talked about kind of how the the center wing dynamic could play in there at the top. Yes. I, I think that obviously uh, it's not limited to, to the first and second overall spots in any draft. And I think a couple of teammates, and, and we've talked about them plenty on this show as well, Connor Geeky and, and Matt Savoy, you've got them 7-8 on your rankings. And you give the slight edge in your ranking at number 7 to Geeky. Um, I, I, my impression, reading the reading the blurbs, talking to you as much as I have, is that that would be in at least you know meaningful part because of the certainty that Connor Geeky brings as a, at the center position as opposed to Savoy, where it's a real question at this point. Is he a center or a wing? Right. And just to go off one last thing on, on the last one, you know, it's obviously not center versus wing isn't the only variable. Otherwise, Taylor yeah. Hall wouldn't would have gone behind Tyler Sagan. There's a t- if the talent is close, take the center, and I think that's yeah. what's going to happen with those two if the draft happened today. In terms of the Winnipeg kids, I mean, right now, based on the last few Winnipeg Ice games I've watched, Geeky and Savoy play on the same line, and Geeky's the center on that line. It doesn't mean that because Savoy is not currently playing center in the WHL, he cannot be an NHL center. He was a center for a very long stretch of time this season in the WHL before they acquired Jack Finley. He was a center at the CHL top prospects game. He's been centers at for very long stretches of his young hockey career. But that is the debate: is with the five. There aren't a lot of five nine centers in the NHL. There aren't a lot of five nine centers. Uh, who don't play a certain way, where either their defensive play is elite or their skating is elite, like a Jack Hughes, 
or something along those lines. And I think both of those components with him are very good. I think he's a very good skater. I think he's very competitive. But you're, you're, it's just against the odds that he would be a center, whereas the 6'3 guy with physicality who's played center reliably for a long period of time and has offense, I, I think you're you're more confident that Geeky is going to be an NHL center, a top-two-line NHL center. And for me, on pure talent, it, it's the gap is closing. I, in the first half of the year, Savoy got off to that you know extremely hot start, and I thought, okay, you know, he's kind of he's separated himself a little bit, at least at the junior level here. Uh, as the season has kind of gone on, I think that gap has closed. The, the scoring gap is still significant. I think Savoy has like ten, fifteen, maybe even some, maybe even closer to twenty points over Geeky, which is a lot. But watching them, uh, I don't think, at least, especially at even strength, I don't think you see that much. Especially now that they're on the same power play unit, I think you're kind of starting to see that they're they're closer in, in pure talent. And given the the pro projection stuff, I, I I would lean towards geeky. And I know it's been a really interesting debate among NHL people. I mean, it's probably been the most fun one of the most uh, fun questions I've had to to ask scouts and see like the where this debate goes when asking would they do for a geeky or Savoy? Because no matter where their team is picking in the draft, everybody has an opinion on this. Well, it is interesting because ultimately I kind of, just to be candid, I feel like Savoy pops a little more. And I think sure. there's always a, a sizzle factor to that. And even I think if you go into your tool grades on that, like this is a guy who you've got with above NHL average tools in four of the five categories. And so I think that's a really exciting package. I, I also agree. I do think size matters. And I think sometimes people um, want to say, well, if this guy was 6'0 or 5'11, you wouldn't have him ranked here. But he's not. He's 6'3 and being 6'3 gives you certain advantages in the NHL. These are both facts. But what I want to know is, okay, we talk about the lack of kind of small centers here. Let's say it's like a Vincent Trocek would be one of the examples I think you've given in the past on this versus like a, a Kevin Fiala who would be a, a smaller wing but who has some dynamic elements to their game. Even if you know that it's it's a wing, let's say it, the projection is Kevin Fiala-ish. Sure. Like how, how far behind a, a geeky projection should should that be? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fair point, and I'm trying to recall off the top of my head because they were both recently traded. I'm trying to remember the Fiala return versus the Trocheck return off the top of my head. Yeah, uh, but I think you prefer the center, no matter what. But I'm saying, like, even if you know for a fact that he's a winger, the the tools here are really impressive. Like, this is still a really good NHL forward prospect. Well, yeah, I mean, the big reason why the Wilds have been so successful this year is, is because of him, Fiala, him and, and some other players, but yep. he, he's a part of that. And I I think, I'm not trying to say that wingers have no value. I have a winger a second overall. I have a winger you know, very yeah, high. They're easier I, to find, though. They, they are easier to find. Uh, you don't have to pay usually as much in the trade in the trade market for them, or in the or in free free agency. Typically, you have to pay a little bit more because because there's it's usually statistics driven. Uh, but for me, when it's close, you take the center, and I think this gap is closing. I can see the argument the other way. I've talked to to people around the league who prefer Savoy. I've talked to people around the league who prefer Geeky. It's 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 really tight. I think, and I would be we really just to see how the how their playoffs go, because I think that's kind of kind of be the thing that that might end up being the, the deciding factor. There is, is how their WHL playoffs go. One more question on these two: Who do you think has more runway left in front of them between Geeky and Savoy? And what do you mean by that? Well, I, I mean this is kind of a, a heuristic here, but like you look at Savoy, who at times can have kind of a full beard here, and, yes. and I think you look at that, Geeky, and- who's a little more baby faced. And I think there it's it's kind of an old uh, old school way of of looking at things, but there's a maturation process that it, okay. some guys hit that prime a little earlier, and, and other guys they have more runway in front of them. I think no, it's a good point, and it's one I've heard actually quite often, particularly for Savoy, because when he was playing in the USHL last season in Dubuque, people were noticing he has a full mustache already. Right, which sixteen years old. I don't know how much to put value into that. I. I see the argument to maybe maybe he hit puberty earlier or something like or something along those lines. So I guess it would be geeky in that regard. I 
But uh, no, I don't even mean it as like who has less facial hair in that way. But I just mean like in terms of projection. Like I, I, I don't usually like incorporate that kind of stuff into that usually. Fair enough. I, but it's something I've heard. It's something I have definitely heard in NHL circles, particularly when it comes to Savoy. Because I think you more often would hear that, I think, as it pertains to like a guy who had like an October birthday or whatever. Sure. But I don't think birth year is the only thing that de- that determines like how far into a player's developmental track they are, right? It's not just that. And you hear it with tropes with Russians too. Like he looks like he's 22 years old or something like that. Sure. Right. Yeah. That kind of thing. So I don't know. I just – I think these are all things to consider. I think this is going to be probably one of the most fascinating – you know, these are two guys who have, who have been teammates and – it's kind of one of the things that the, the, the they draft. were teammates, and in the WHL draft, they went one two in the same draft, yeah, and and now recently line mates. So it's it's a it's an inevitable storyline, and I think it's going to continue to be a good one. Speaking of teammates, though, so we know Logan Cooley kind of has you've got him number three in your rankings all year, wire to wire. He's really been the guy at the NTDP, but the the question I think right now is who's next because I think there's a, there's a lot of buzz around Frank Nazer but there's also lately been a lot of buzz around Cutter Gautier and these are two very different players um, I'm curious who do you think is is the next best player at the NTDP and we're talking about particularly the 2022 draft because correct it's the, because if we start talking about the entire team Charlie Stramel is a guy I expect is going to go very high in the 2023 draft. And you can argue he's right at the same level as Logan Cooley as a prospect. But in terms of the 2022 draft, uh, you're right that there's been, you know, I would say, a lack of a, you know, of a consensus opinion in scouting circles on who's the next guy after Cooley. Some argue it is Frank Nazar, who since they've been fully healthy, the NTDP that is, he's been the second line center on that team. Undersized guy, but an excellent skater, highly competitive, brings offense, maybe doesn't drive the play or is quite as dynamic a small player like Cooley is, but he's a he's a very good prospect committed to Michigan. Then you have Cutter Gautier, who's really just kind of been on this steep upward trajectory since the start of the season. Where when I the start of the season, I I talked to scouts who thought Nazar could be like a late first. I didn't so I talked to rarely any skeptics at the start of the season who thought Gauthier was going to be the first round pick. But now the discussion is, does he, can he maybe crack the top 12, top 10? So he's kind of, he's really been elevating. He's on the first line, first power play now on that, on that team. 6'3 guy who could skate. He has one of the best shots in the draft. He has good skill. He's played center this season, but when Strainwell was injured, I think there's a legitimate question on whether he's actually going to be an NHL center or not, whether he had that level of playmaking and all-around play to be an NHL center, even though he has the size and the skating. So I think that's gonna that's one of the variables that will kind of tug between him and Nazar, is if you believe Nazar is a center, again, 5'10 guy, uh, not, not a guarantee, but if you believe Nazar is a center, or you believe Gautier is a center, I think those are going to be two things that are, that are going to drive that conversation. And for, for the most part, those are the two guys – I hear the most about as the as the favorite to be the second guy picked from the program. There are minority opinions of people who prefer one of the wingers, like Rutger McGrody, who's been playing very well lately, like Jimmy Snuggerud, who doesn't have the big numbers, but one of the young, you know, he's like a July birthday, so he's young, has progressed very well, kind of betting on a trajectory there, projection uh, with his size, his shot skill. And there are still some people who like Isaac Howard a lot too, although I think that's dwindled over the course of the season. The, uh, you know, that's the, the second best part of the NTDP, but the other conversation I guess would be, the th- I, we, we've kind of had the debate on the top defenseman in some degree, Nemitz versus Juracek, but uh, kind of an emerger into the next tier of, of defensemen, at least by your rankings, um, this most recent one. I don't believe Kevin Korchinski out of Seattle was in the most recent one prior to this. I think it was January, but he is in there at number 17. Um, I think he's in the same tier as Pickering and, and Minchikov. Um, what did he do to get himself into that tier? And and, and could he be the, the third defenseman in this draft? Yeah, I when I saw him in the first half of the season, I saw a talented player. I saw a good, you know, decent sized, good skating defenseman. Looked like he had some offense. So I thought, okay, this is an interesting player, but he really didn't defend that well. I thought yeah, had struggles really in his own end to win battles and it had to be used in a very specific way by his coach. 
But as the season has gone on, his play has elevated, and he, often he's playing 25, 28, 30 minutes a night for Seattle, who look like not one of the top teams, but a good team in the WHL this season. Plays huge minutes, still doesn't kill penalties because of the defensive issues, but he, but he has, brings really, really good even strength, very good on the power play. The offense is even coming on stronger now as the season has gone on. He's right around a point a game uh, for a defenseman who is – uh, just measured in recently at the top prospect game at six foot two, can skate, has offense. He looks like a really intriguing player. You like your defenseman to be able to defend well, but he's also a very young defenseman. He's another one I think is like a June July birthday. So yep. you presume by, by by throughout his junior career, those are things he can add to his game. And to go with his toolkit, I have when I put out my last ranking in January. He was the one I heard from around the league, you know, you're too low on this guy. And I was hesitant for a while, but I kept going back and watching again and again and saw him, you know, just recently his top roster game was just okay. But, uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I see the argument, I see the toolkit, the top four defenseman potential. And, and, and now I kind of have him in that, in that group with those other guys who have somewhat similar skill sets as well. What's the name uh, on this list that you've heard the most from, whether it's too high or too low so far? You've had a, a good day and a half here to, to, to let the text roll in. I haven't heard you know that that much. I, the one I guess I've heard the most was Liam Bischel, the defenseman okay. from Lexan in Switzerland. There are definitely some people out there who really, really like this kid. I... I'm getting there. If you asked me to go, like, this was a 27-player list. If you asked me for 28, he would have been it. Yep. So he would have been the first guy in the next tier. I want to kind of see, you know, he just got hurt. We'll see whether he gets to play again this season. If he does, whether it's U18s, World Championships, I kind of want to see how we would do at those levels. And then uh, I'll see whether I I would elevate him into, into, into that top tier. The last guy on the list I want to talk about is Nathan Gaucher. And I, I think technically he comes in a little later on the list than he did in the previous ranking. But ultimately, um, I, I don't think it's major movement for him. And, and he, he was a guy who I thought stood out to me at the top prospects game. I know we talked about him on the last episode. Um, what's kind of the team's view of, of Nathan Gaucher? Because he's not the fleetest of foot player, but he does bring, um, you know, really good size for a centerman. And it looks like he's going to be a true two-way shutdown player with high competitiveness that I, you know, sometimes that can compensate for a little bit of a skating deficiency. Right. I was just talking to somebody before the podcast about him and that, you know, their argument was you're probably drafting the bottom six forward, which you don't really love telling your fans and your ownership when you have a first round pick. But if he could be a third-line center, which I personally think he could be, that's a very valuable piece. And I think he can be a third-line center. I think he can be because there is – that's kind of been the question here with him this season is his offense has been not what you hoped after he was a point-of-game guy the previous year in the queue. He still has some offense. I think he's got like 25 goals this year, nothing nothing to sneeze at. But he doesn't really make a ton of plays. He has good good hands, can make plays around the net, but he's not a driver of a line offensively. But he's very competitive, big physical center who can kill penalties, provide secondary offense. I, I like him. I thought his top prospects game was very good too, as we discussed the other day. Uh, and I-, I see a place for him in the first round, but because the offense hasn't come, I've had to lower the projection there a little bit. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because during the top prospects game, I, I agree. It's like the, the feet are a concern, but I just haven't felt like he looks too slow. And I think that's partly because right. of the competitiveness. For what it's worth, there are some scouts I've talked to who like the feet. When I asked Gaucher what he thought his biggest strengths were, he said his skating. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> everyone, you know, everyone's opinions will can vary on these things. I personally have never seen that before, but, but uh, some people, some scouts do think he's a strong skater. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I like this player. I think he's going to play in the NHL. I think he's going to play in the NHL for, for a significant amount of time. Not everybody agrees with that, but 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 I believe that. One last thing on Bischel I just wanted to say before before I wrapped up here is I kind of see the tensions there. I think there's going to be a couple defensemen in this year's draft we're going to have these debates about because I think there's a, there's like three guys who kind of fit this mold. It's Bischel, Maverick Lamoureux and Drummondville, and Noah Warren and Gatineau, who are these big, mobile, 
physical defensemen. And the question on all three of them is, do they have enough offense? I think people lately have been convinced by Bischel, but that's the thing I'm, I'm still trying to sort out here in the coming months. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Max, so you had a big day at The Athletic the other day when you had the A1, which for people who don't care about newspaper type terms, A1 refers to the lead story on, on the website. Uh, from when you visited Sweden and yeah. got to visit the Frölunda organization in Gothenburg, Sweden. And I know you were over there for various reasons uh, for, for uh, your Red Wings coverage. But what was it about Frölunda that kind of drew you to them and made you decide to do a story about them, not really from the Red Wings perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the thing that drew me overall to Sweden was that the Red Wings had picked six guys from this one program in the last three years. And you don't, you know, you see teams that sometimes can have ties. Obviously, uh, the Ottawa Senators have happened to draft a lot of kids who are committed to North Dakota uh, over the last few years. But I think when you when you start to see a, a program really pull from the same place over and over, it just gets your attention. And really, with I had thought, too. especially right with high picks. And, and so uh, I, I thought about it as early as the 2020 draft when they took both Raymond and Niederbach uh, after having taken Elmer Soderblom and, and Gustav Berglund the year before. And then really when they came back the next year, it was really three straight drafts where they've taken multiple guys from this one team. Uh, that's what spurred it. So obviously the the immediate benefit is I get to see all these guys and, and, and write stories about them. But I was very curious, like what is going on here that that is so interesting? And I think there there's some organizational ties that I think are, are relevant to this, right? Like Hawk and Anderson, who's uh, probably the most famous scout that the Red Wings have, a European scout who brought in a lot of their really good players in their prime years, was at one point on the board of this program and at a pretty important time. Um, but he hasn't been for the last six years and, and certainly not for the the period where the Red Wings have drafted so heavily from there. I'm sure there's still connections there that, that help with this stuff. And obviously he's familiar, sure. but ultimately what I found was they, they really, they just do a pretty good job of churning out top players. And, you know, they've had three prospects in the last four years drafted in the top 10. And I can't think of Corey, maybe you can help me out. I can't think of any other program other than the NTDP that would have had a stretch like that in recent memory. And so inherently to me, that just stood out as really interesting. And I wanted to see what are they doing, if anything, to, to, to cause that, to create that. Right. I'm sure the London Knights have been there in some stretches. The Halifax Mooseheads might be the one that comes to mind. Yeah, there. that's right. Zadina, Heesher, McKinnon. Yeah, that's a Dr- good one. Drouin. Drouin, yeah. Timo Meyer, Nikolai Eliers. All right, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to people who didn't know by the name mentioned before, Hakan Anderson, he's one of the most famous uh, NHL scouts of the last 20 years, was a big part of when the Red Wings got all those mid-round Europeans that became stars. And as you mentioned in the piece, he was a significant part of Frölunda there for, for a period of time. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I, I think that's all really relevant stuff. But what, what I found that kind of I think helped explain this is was several things really. I think number one – and this might just be my personality, um, but I'm always drawn to who are the people that, at a place like this that, that make it tick. And there's a lot of interesting ones. I, I didn't get to meet the chairman, Matt Growers, um, but he came in at, a, at an interesting time in this organization's history. Um, they, they were probably overspending for for where they were. And, and so um, they've, they're it's a historic program. They've had a long history of, of churning out really good players. Um but they financially, I think, but at, the, at kind of the turn of the 2010s, got into a spot where they needed to kind of rein things in. And at that time, they brought in this guy, Mats Growers, who had been running a handball club in Sweden, a totally different sport. And they, they brought him in and wanted him to kind of run it similarly. And, and the focus really was 
this needs to be a develop our own future players situation. And so um, the, the handball team, I know, had a rule that they 50% of their um, uh, pro roster, they wanted to have originated from their own development academy. And, and Ferlunda has that same ethos. And and so um, that, I think, is a really big one. I, I would have liked to have met him while I was down there. We, we've emailed um, quite a bit uh, since then. But um, I, the, the general manager, Frederick Schuster, who's a former NHL first-round pick, he went back over there and I think, ironically, was one of the players who – by his own acknowledgement, thinks he was probably making too much in that era and had to kind of um, step away. They, they ultimately had to move on from him and he moved into a front office role. And I think culture-wise, that's a really interesting thing to have a former NHL player who really knows what it takes, who's also you know invested enough in the club that he wants to be part of it even after that kind of situation but I think that, and that, you know, they've got really good people working. The development manager, Mikkel Strom, um, I spent quite a lot of time with while I was there, and I found him to be a really interesting guy with really high buy-in to what they're doing. Um, but I think the guy that is probably most associated, the person most associated with with this era of Freeland is the coach, Roger Ronberg. And Corey, I know when we had our, if you could think all the way back to the pandemic, uh, the, the heart of the pandemic, the start of it, where there were no real sports going on. Um, we did our mega mock draft for the NHL and we all had to draft like a, a player, uh, an owner, a GM, a coach, all that. You drafted Roger Ronberg during that draft. And so before I talk about him, I did want to hear like, what was your process for when you went to select that? Was that like a, you, you just know from covering uh, prospects this long, this was someone you're interested in? Did you poll people about this? Right now, I just knew from the World Juniors having watched, right. you know, watched him coach for a while, World Juniors, and then be with the SHL forever, you know, help being a leading team and that was that everything draft was kind of silly exercise where we had to like draft like a, we had to draft like a player and a city and an a owner. City, yeah, and right. I just put him at the end there because coaches are irreplaceable or typically you know very often replaced. I, yeah, they're more I, fluid than so an owner. I, I, a city. I, I let all the NHL guys go first, and <laughs> and I think he I think he's proven he could be a, a legitimate candidate being an NHL coach. And you know I, I like some of the things he's done, so that's why I, you know I, I picked him there. I do think in general the NHL should try to be more proactive in hiring Europeans for management roles and for coaching uh, coaching roles. I think you're slowly starting to see this. Uh, right now there are two head scouts in the NHL who are European. That that number was zero as of a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, the, the Islanders and Columbus being those teams. Uh, and actually, Seattle has it has a European head scout too, although he is based in North America. So three, my, my mistake. But but that is something that I think the league should be trying to be more proactive to doing. Uh, well, I thought it was interesting from when I read your article was comparing it to the the Ska article I did uh, yeah. a few months ago. That article was not really about Ska. Your article was about Frulunda. Uh, my the article was about Madhavi Mitchkov. Uh, the top prospect for the 2023 draft and just how the ska thing kind of influences his story. But when I was, you know, researching ska, I kind of learned about how they also used to be, you know, this, this team that just threw a lot of money around, brought in a lot of free agents and they too decided we're going to start, you know, developing our own players, really develop investing in a farm system. We want to be a homegrown team. And we want to really invest in our facilities and I, I saw some analogies to that in your story in terms of, you know, the re- how these elite European teams, not just in the KHL and the SHL, but typically whenever I hear about these elite European teams, and you also could argue this applies to college hockey to an extent too. Yeah. The, the really elite programs really develop, invest in things around the hockey team. Usually when it comes to, you know, their training, their facilities, uh, how they how they develop them as athletes and as people. They put a lot of money into the things you don't see necessarily on the ice. Yeah, I mean the the gym there is really nice. They they have this little mini skill rink. The complex is called Frulundaborg. I think it translates to Campus Frulunda. And they've got this mini rink behind the the practice sheet where if if you wanted to, if you're like a, a high school player and you come to the rink, I think you usually get there about an hour before practice. If you wanted to jump on like the little rink and practice skill work or work on your shot or work on certain things, um, you can do that. And I think these are little things that you think about what are the hardest thing practically, the hardest things to do with developing a young hockey player. Obviously, 
the, the talent part is a big part of it. And, and, and there's all these intangible stuff, but there is a resource component to this. And one of the biggest resources I think is probably ice time because it is kind of a scarce resource. And to have this little mini rink, I think is a really interesting example of something that you'd be afforded at a program like this, that, that I think would, I could imagine being really helpful to working on a specific little skill. Um, so I, I think you're exactly right about that. I'd also add, you know, for Linda, they really the, I would say the elite program there, it starts at, with the U16 team, but what they do that I think is really interesting is the regional development aspect of this, because I think one question you could reasonably raise about this place is, okay, yeah, they've had three top 10 picks in the last four years and all of them are from their surrounding area. Including a first overall pick. Correct. Rasmus Dahlin is from the surrounding area. Lucas Raymond played, you know, at, at Freelander since he was like a kid. Like at some point you could probably make a, make a decent argument of like, well, yeah, I mean, you had the, the fortunate uh, pattern of, of these players being born there and raised there. But What's interesting to me is how much I think Freeland invests in the regional development there, including in their kind of way of doing things that, that they they want to share this identity that they have, which it's in the story. It's kind of like always pressure, always attack, always puck control. These are kind of their kind of first principles of, of their hockey. And they, they share it. There's this like 70 page document um, online that you can find for like how they want youth players ultimately kind of to, to come up and be raised. And so I think that's a relevant counter to the idea that like, you know, how, you know, the, yes, I do think the geography helps. It's Sweden's second largest city. That's going to help for sure. But I think they are an active participant in kind of cultivating the landscape here for, for how these players are going to come up even before they set foot in Fruland. Edvinson didn't get there until he was 15, right. but in the surrounding organizations, like there is a, a tie. I think Fruland meets with some of the other youth coaches from other programs monthly. Um, and I think that's really relevant to all of this. So um, that I thought was really interesting. I, I'm curious, Corey, because one of the things that, that I was interested in while I was over there is there are players from there. Like they've had 27 guys drafted to the NHL in the last seven years. And obviously not all of them are a Lucas Raymond or a Simon Edvinson or a Rasmus Dahlin. Um, when you look at a guy like a Carl Henriksen, who was a second round pick of the other New York Rangers, um, it's not like he's reached, you know, kind of this this top end status. And I think you could you could fairly ask the question of like, well, with a guy like that, how do you explain that away when you talk about, not explain it away, but explain, you know, okay, he, he hasn't really broken through to that next level. If uh, Theodore Niederbach is a, is a Red Wings prospect who's a year or two younger than Henriksen, similar thing. He hasn't really, when I was there, he had three goals in three games, but otherwise he hasn't had like a dominant year or anything. I, I think that's an interesting um, question for all of this too, is that, you know, the special players have come through at the top of the draft and, and they've had a lot of guys drafted. Sure is the next step, like how do you kind of rate the guys and, and account for the guys who are, are drafted? And then it does take a little longer. And I, that's something I grappled with in the story. Yeah. I'd probably argue both just my opinion, obviously is I think both of those guys were drafted too high, but, but that's a whole other issue. Sure. But, but, but yeah, I mean, no program is going to have a perfect track record, particularly when you know, the priority, they can say all these kinds of things about development and I wanted to bring in a player, but the priority of those programs are to win. Win yeah. SHL championships, and they will do whatever they have to do to win those games. Particularly, obviously, when when the le- when the lever starts to increase. So, the I find these programs they prioritize development, but they do it at their convenience. Essentially, they want to make sure those players are coming because you want organizational depth for when when injuries happen, or when you look around the SHL landscape. The SHL landscape has changed a lot over the last few years with you know, programs emerging that were in the Alspenskin a couple of years ago and now all of a sudden are pushing to become playoff, yep. you know, legitimate playoff threats. And and geography isn't always, as we mentioned, the, the only thing that matters. You have the main Stockholm team for forever, your garden, who as we speak are down to nothing in the relegation series and are probably going to get relegated unless they make yep. some sort of big comeback here. And that was the team with William Eklund and, and Alexander Holtz and, and many other high picks over a long period of time. So uh, there's, there's no guarantees from geography. So their priority is to win. So I'm not going to fault them if a couple of guys don't work out, particularly when you have guys who are not you know, thoroughbreds. You know, if a guy like a Simon Edmondson doesn't work out, then you start asking some sure. some, some yeah. hard questions. But when the 5'10 guy doesn't skate that well, doesn't work out, that's just, that's just life sometimes, I think. One thing I thought that was interesting is you mentioned, what was the name of the complex? Uh, Frulindeborg. 
Right. So when I did the ska piece, they actually called their whole like facility a uh, hockey city. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I thought it was interesting that there's some similarities there that they kind of like have like these grandiose names uh, for, for their complexes and their approach where ska had like the multiple rinks and the gyms and yeah. you know, all, all the other crap they had. Well, one <laughs> thing I just like was I, I kind of fall in love, I guess, with this romanticized idea of European development, right? Because you do get to have these kids in, in, in a way that, um, you know, an NHL team doesn't get to raise a kid from 16, right? Like it, it, in sure. some ways the junior programs do, but then they don't get to have them as pros. And I, I love this idea of, of how you can, you know, whether it's with the academy model or, or whatever else, I, I love the idea of how you can raise these people and, and have them for so long. That just fascinates me. And, and I, I think, um, that that's certainly not unique to, to Ferlunda. It's not unique to Scott. It, this is like, this is the way it is over there. And, and I kind of love the continuity. Soccer is obviously, you know, if, you, totally. if, you're, if you're big into, you know, into, into soccer, you know, that's a big, that's a big thing in terms of how they develop players. And in America, we don't have that. I think the closest thing we would have is college football, where you have, you know, this long recruiting process and they come in and for the top tier programs, the facilities are incredibly lux- luxurious and, they invest, invest, invest into those programs, you know, for, for reasons that you can kind of go down a rabbit hole on, but, but they do. <laughs> and, yeah. but, we, but we don't, that, you know, that starts, you can't, you can recruit earlier. We don't really start developing these players until they're 18 years old, usually. Whereas in Europe, like I said, you can typically top prospects unless they're born in, for example, in Sweden, in Gothenburg or in Stockholm, they're going to bounce around programs a little yep. bit, but, there are times, like in a case like a Lucas Raymond, where like from, from 14, 15 years old, you are a member of this organization. Even from five. If- he, he was born in Gothenburg. He was, he was frilling his whole life. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it's much different than what we deal with in North America. It is. And, and one thing I like about it is the way – this is something that they showed me. So they had this kind of uh, – I think it was a, on a computer or something. There was like a step chart. It was John Klingberg. And they, they kind of show like his draft year and, and what it was like for him and – Ultimately, it's kind of like when he was playing with his age group, he was dominant. And when he would play up an age group, he was basically, I think the word that they used was like he was trying to survive. And you can do both there. Like when you're at Alabama football, if you're not quite ready, you're just not playing. But in right. Europe and, and you know th- this program, I, I think they're very conscious about it. They want you to do both. They want you to experience this is what the next level is. This is how hard it is. And go down to your own peers. Yes, I'm really good. Like I'm still really good at my age group, but this is what it's going to take to get to the next level. I found that push and pull um, really interesting and I think really useful. And it's something that there's not really a, an analog to uh, in, in North America. I mean, the, the closest thing I could think of would be like a – NTDP U17 going up to the U18s for some games, but even sure. then they're playing uh, similar I, I, schedules. I guess, I guess American League to the NHL kind of thing, but yeah, but yeah. that's at like it, the it, top, right? Yeah. Right, right. No, for sure. And there's some cons to that model too, yeah. where in some examples you have just like the player playing Sweden J20 or the Russian playing in the MHL or the Finn playing in their junior league. And then they go up and they're really good and they go up to the big club and they play like 10 games and they score one or two points and then they come back, they get a taste, they go to next year and, and they're good. Right. Uh, but a lot of times it doesn't work that way. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you have these kids who bounce between three, four, five levels in yeah. a given season. They'll be the Sweden who plays the J20. Then he goes to the J18s. and They load him to uh, the Osvenskin. Well, there's the J18 Elite and the J18 Osvenskin. And then there's yep. the Osvenskin League and then the SHL. Then they play international games. And, it's, and before the end of the season happens, they've had seven head coaches. And they've all been in, in one program. I was just like researching a Slovakian player for, for, for draft reasons today. And he has played for between, cause he, he was with one Slovakian team. He got traded to another Slovakian team between the Slovakian team. He was with initially the second one, their pros, their juniors and international games. He's played for nine teams this season, one season <laughs> that, yeah, that's, a, that's a lot. <laughs> it's wild. I mean, it, it, it yeah. I mean that, that, that was, is too extreme, but I, I just found it really appealing. The idea of like, you, you're in one, you can be in one place in Europe. And you can play at multiple levels for whatever suits your needs at a given stretch in a season, not just at the start. You got to know it's like if you're struggling, yeah, go down and play against your peers. If you're really crushing your peers, hey, go up and get humbled a little bit. Like all these things that I think are really good for you. 
I found myself really drawn to that. And and I think it's interesting because it, it's it's certainly not the only program in, in Sweden that that is really good at this stuff. And there, there's a lot of really good programs there. Um, you know, Rugla is one that Scott Wheeler's written about the the Abbott brothers who run it there. They've turned that from a program that was facing relegation uh, the year before they arrived into probably the best team in the SHL right now. They're certainly in first place of the standings at the end of the season. They won the European Champions League. Um, there's other programs, Leftio, Lulio, um, Vacquas won like three of the last seven championships there. There's a lot of really good teams. And I think we're in a, a really interesting era of hockey in that country that there's some really good programs. And I think their development model, it, I, I just find it really appealing, the, the, the Swedish model. And like I said, you know, we have the Jurgarden, historically one of the big, pro- one right. of the big programs, but been relegated. HV71, historically, arguably the biggest program in Swedish Hockey League, currently in the Osvenskan. Yeah. Um, and what does that do to the available talent to these other places, right? Because it's, I mean, you could play in the Osvenskan, especially as a young player, and it's okay. But. Well, you saw what happened. Colorado drafts Oscar Olsen in the first round, and he's, he's in Ontario right now. So. Correct, right. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. So but it was a really cool experience. I, I was really glad I did it. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIP. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Corey, uh, let's wrap it up today with a mailbag and and some good ones today. Um, Starting with one from Michael A. that's interesting. What specific traits or attributes make NHL teams more willing to bet on a college free agent as opposed to when they were first draft eligible? In other words, they're a lot older by this point. So what are the traits here that become most important for for a college free agent as opposed to the, the first year eligibles? So typically at the beginning of the draft, the first, never mind the first round, even like the first three rounds. There's usually some sort of differentiator about a player that gets them drafted in that range. Typically, it's athletic traits. It's they're, they're 6'1 or 6'2 and skate very well and have some offense. Or if they aren't those things, their offense is just so incredible, it pops off the charts. You have an elite skill, elite hockey sense, something that gets you drafted in those first couple of rounds. Once you get past there, though, and I think some readers will recognize that they read my writing typically when it comes to those late round picks that have a chance guys that I would put into a draft ranking of their farm system. These players start to look really similar to each other. They're, they're all, they all don't skate very well or they're, they're undersized. They have some offense. They don't have a lot. And they, there's, they start to really look really similar to each other. And what teams end up doing typically in those fifth, sixth, seventh rounds is they kind of identify this pool of, let's say, a uh, hundred players or 150 players, and they got to pick up like the five or ten of them they think will pop as time goes on. Because usually those late round picks are the guys who are going to college or, or playing in Europe that you're going to control for a long time. You're going to be able to see how they develop, typically. There obviously are junior players that get drafted in the late rounds, too. But what you usually see with these college free agents is those guys from that pool of 100, 150 guys I mentioned. You see as time has gone on, which one of those guys who are 6'0 or 6'1 don't skate very well kind of thing, but but seemed, but you thought had a good hockey sense and competitive and maybe they has a chance, which one of those popped three, four years later and seemed to be on a better trajectory than those other 100 guys that I mentioned before? 
So it, it just, the, the benefit of time gives you at least a, just more information to tell you who's going to separate. They're still usually not elite athletes. Like every now and again, you get the Danny DeKaiser who's big and mobile. And you're like, how the heck this was this guy not drafted? And, and people go after those guys. But usually the college free agents, the European free agents are not premium athletes. Or if they are, they typically have very little offense. And you just got the benefit of time to seeing who's separated from the pack. All right. Uh, from that to a guy who has every tool and was identified immediately. Now that Owen Power <laughs> is about to likely wrap up his NCAA career, do you feel he's ready to make an impact in the pros? And do you think the leap he made offensively this year is going to translate to the NHL? He's pro ready. He probably could have played in the NHL this season. I do think it did benefit him to go back to college, watching him in college hockey this season. I think... Sabres fans might have been frustrated watching him in the NHL this season. I think he still would have been good, but I, I think you would have. There would have been some learning you know, bumps there as as an eighteen year old turning nineteen in the NHL, particularly on a team that was. I think they weren't as bad as people thought they were going to be this season, but they but they weren't a a top team, obviously. So, but I, I do think he'll help them next year. I think he could be a top four defenseman for them next season. I think it's all, you know, he's an excellent, excellent player. Big, mobile, has offense. You know, he's going to be a really good two way defenseman in the National Hockey League. I'm not sure how much I'm going to be able to see this year, year Max, but I think it's fair to say he was great. But for a first overall pick, I, I thought he would have this monster year. And I don't think he hit that level. He was still really, really good. Obviously, that's brief world juniors, he was good. Goes players men at the Olympics, holds his own, all that, all that stuff. You know, he's going to be a great player. Just I didn't think, I didn't think he had the big, big year. Well, and his game, despite being six six, his game isn't maybe in the same way as like a Luke Hughes or a Kent Johnson, right. which doesn't jump off the ice at you quite in the same way. But I think he's he's a really good player. On the topic of this offense question, though, here's my question for you: You're let's say you're the Buffalo Sabres coach. Are you playing power? on the second power play behind Dalin, or would you consider playing him on the first power play on the flank and having them both out there? Because I think he does have the vision to make the kind of plays sure. you want from a flank player, does have the shot to play like a flank player. What would you do? Well, he's definitely not kicking Dalin off the first unit. And I'm guessing those are issues they're going to have tensions with. I'm guessing there'll be times where he does do that. Sometimes he's going to be on the second power play. Because he doesn't have... I think you're going. I think you're hoping as time develops, you know, you're going through the organization, does he have... More offense than Krebs? No. Does he have more offense than Jack Quinn? No. Darlene? No. So you're bumping Dahl, you're bumping Dylan Cousins off, or you're bumping, you know, then you start, never mind the, the veterans they have on the team, right. like Alex Tuck and whatnot. So I'm guessing at the end of the day, he will be second power play. But I still, I, I do really like this player. I think your point is fair. He can be a little bit bland, but you saw in the game last weekend when that game versus Queen of Piac tightened up, his minutes yep. went up, starts killing lots of plays, getting the pucks up the ice. I think he made that one play on the empty netter to kind of, to kind of seal it. Uh, you know, he, he's a great, great player. Should be should help that team a lot next season. I think he's a one. Like this is not to disparage him. It's just it's just the style of the game. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. right. He, he, he's not a take the game over kind of player. Yeah, but but you're going to be really glad he's on your team. Yes, I agree. He's a he's a he's a potential he's a projected number one defenseman. Yeah. All right. Uh, Brian Holland, does Owen Tippett develop into a solid second liner for you? I think this is a good question because this is a fair range of like a, not a perfect outcome, but like a solid 80th percentile outcome for, for Owen Tippett. Yeah. And I think, I think he will. I mean, I, from where I've, he hasn't really scored much in the couple of games played the Flyers, but when I've watched him, I think he's looked good. Like, I think he looks like he's going to be that for them. You know, obviously, their depth chart's a lot different than Florida's depth chart. He will have much more opportunity there, and I, I think he will. I don't think he's going to hit that echelon of why he was the 10th overall pick, but if you redid that draft, I think he goes in the teens, and I think I think he's an excellent young prospect with a lot of talent. He's got to work on, on his consistency there a little bit, as he has for a very long time, but I think he has all the tools to be a top six, top six winger for them. I understand you just traded Claude Giroux. You you wanted more, but the situation was was situation with with his no movement clause. And I, but I do think nothing against Owen Tippett. I think he's going to be a very good player for a long time. 
next one is from Etienne, who wants to know what you are seeing or not seeing in Tristan Luno. He's not one of the guys that that uh, I brought up when we talked about the D in the first segment, but another guy who I think maybe not quite in that tier, but not not so far behind that group of guys. Right. So he was in my first round range in the January ranking. He was not in it in in the one I and I just put out, and he's one I've I've really struggled with this season. To your point, yes, he's not far behind at all. Uh, but he is a guy I've struggled with with this season. Uh, watched him a lot, both vid- you know, saw him live like I think once or twice, and I watched him a lot on video. Talked to a lot of scouts about him. He has interesting tools as a six-two right shot defenseman. He has good hands. He has good offensive hockey sense. He can score goals. Power play is very good. He can move past the puck up the ice very well. My issues are, I think his skating's below average. I think his defending's below average. And, and given that, the question is, does he have enough offense to justify those concerns? And I've teetered with this all season. I lean now to, I wonder if he could be a legit top four defenseman given those issues. When you compare him to Korchinski, Pickering, Minchikov, like I can't get him into that grouping because of those skating issues. But I do like this player and... I can't be convinced otherwise in in the last couple of weeks of the season into the playoffs, but but I'm not there yet. What you got in the Frozen Four? This one's from Daniel Martin. I'll ask you first. Who do you have in the Frozen Four? Um, I mean, I I went to Michigan and, and they're the most talented team in the country, so I, I tend to think that that I like them. But you know, it is one of those things where I don't think you ever want to get in the habit of betting against Minnesota State in in a tournament like this and in a setting like this. I think they're the kind of team that. Um, defensively can shut it all down and, and shut Denver is an amazingly talented team too. The Michigan Denver game um, is going to be unreal, but I kind of can't shake the feeling that Minnesota state's winning it anyway. <laughs> right. Cause I think you have, you have three programs there in Michigan, Denver, Minnesota. Yeah, of who course. Yeah. Are loaded with NHL talent. This is going to be, you know, one of the more enjoyable frozen four from an NHL talent perspective that we've had in quite a few, quite a few years. Also, we had Kale McCarr in the 2019 iteration, but there's just like a lot of depth in this one. So, yeah, I older teams have a certain edge in in this tournament, but I think you saw it with Denver uh, in the, in the regionals. They went up against you know a competitive veteran Minnesota Duluth team, which also has a, you know has NHL talent, and they fared well. Uh, so I, I do think, for me, the winner of the Frozen Four will come out of that Michigan-Denver game. I think both of those teams are, are excellent. If I had to pick one right now, it's Denver. But I think it's it's, it's really tight between those two. Well, and Denver, like to your point, just beat a Duluth team that, that plays, I think, comparably to, to Minnesota State. But it did take a little bit of a bounce for, for that goal to actually go in. I don't know how yes. long that game would have gone otherwise. So. I, I'm going to take Minnesota State. So if you want to take Denver, we can we can put a little uh, side wager on the line for this. And of course, neither of them will win. Michigan will win or something like that. Yeah, they will. And you know what? That's fine. Uh, Bandwagon Leafs fan wants to know why is refereeing so abysmal in hockey nowadays? A question that I think we probably could have taken for this mailbag um, probably any of the weeks in its existence. Yeah, I seen whenever I put out these. I usually so before if anyone wants to know how you get into the mailbag, <laughs> uh, usually about a day before the episode airs, I put a either a tweet out or uh, put something in the athletics real time section to submit questions, and we always get a plethora of refereeing related inquiries, right. and we usually ignore them, but we thought not to ignore it today. So let's let's talk about refereeing, and I think Max and I have a similar opinion: is that we think they get a bad rap. It's really hard to be a referee. I mean, that's my main thing is that I think that the calls that you – I try to hold myself to the standard of if it takes me a replay to be fired up about a call, I have to give the referee the grace because they don't get the replay when they have to make the call. Um, I think they get a lot right. And, and a lot of times I see a play on the ice happen and I think, what are they calling there? And then I see a replay and it's actually something that did happen that I would not have seen. Now, I've got a little different angle. I get that. but I. I kind of think referees a really hard job, and I think they do an okay job at it, to be honest. Yeah, like the, the sport's really, really fast. There's a lot going on down there. And it's just the nature of the sport. 
you know, you just said you, you get to watch a replay and that's kind of the rabbit hole you can go down with this Correct. stuff is do you want everything being on replay? No, <laughs> not it, at all. You know, I personally hate the way video review has taken over the game of hockey. I, I understood the inclination, the goals of it initially were to make sure that the obvious thing that everybody in the world saw except for the referee didn't happen. We, you know, the Matt Duchesne goal from a, from a couple of years ago, but it's evolved into was his hair over the blue line type of things that I, I, I wish wasn't in the game, but it is. And with ref, with the game of hockey, you have a lot of judgment calls. You know, I love baseball and I can see why you can have, you can start to remove the help human element from baseball because the strike zone is defined. Yeah. It's um, fixed. You, you can, I can see a, a future where players are, are, are tagged with like sort of computer chips for like tagging them on the bases and stuff like that and for who hit the first base first and all that kind of stuff. But for the game of hockey, like how do you define roughing? How do you define interference? And if you really start to define it, you will notice it happens extremely often in the course of a game. That's where those judgment calls come in. Like, is that really a penalty? We've called four penalties. It's a human variable that I know some people hate exists, but it does exist because if it if you really ask the refs to call everything, there would be no even strength play in, in the NHL anymore. Well, and I think there's something to that with the questions here is that I, I think people would like more power plays, more offense, because I it's it's right. exciting. It's the most exciting part of the game. I think that is part of what drives this conversation. And I think it's a, I think it's a legitimate conversation. You kind of saw it after the lockout in 05. Power plays went really up. And then they started to go down. And I really yeah. doubt players became more disciplined. I tend to agree with you. Uh, to me, it, it's – you know how in the NFL they say you could call holding on every play? Uh, I, I think there's some kind of infraction that you could call on most plays, whether it's whether it's a slash or whether it's something – some kind of hold or interference. It happens all the time. It's kind of like how – you don't call icing just because the guy's two steps over, you know, behind the red line kind of thing. You want the flow of the game. Hockey is a flow sport. Um, I tend to think that saying call the rule book is a um, oversimplification that most people would not stand by if they saw what it looked like in practice. But doesn't I do tend to agree though with the people who criticize the refs and people who criticize the umps in baseball and etc. I think there should be a degree of accountability. For sure. officials, I don't see why it's unreasonable. I know they have their own union and they negotiate these things. I don't yep. see why it's unreasonable for them to do a press conference after or talk to the media after if there was a controversial call. And even if just sit, we're, we're all human. I would be perfectly fine with officials saying, I got it wrong. Here's my question about that, though. So the the I live in Detroit. The Armando Galarraga perfect game. Right. You know gets blown and he says i got it wrong it doesn't undo it right the nba right. does their last two minute report and they'll say yeah this should have been called this it doesn't undo the result of the game so what is like the ultimate is it just like a public shame thing like what is the ultimate benefit of i, well, I agree with the account i want a pool reporter i think i agree with that i, I don't want that to get lost here but i do think at the end of the day a lot of fans end up with like well a lot of good that does me i think Yes, in that specific example, the I got it wrong. Yes, it's just a public shaming kind of thing. But there could be instances where they can actually, there might be a piece of the rule book that you're not aware of. You know, that's why I've always, you yeah. know, I've really, I've really loved, you know, on sports broadcasts in the last five years, how they brought in former officials onto football broadcasts and hockey broadcasts and whatnot to explain, hey, oh yeah, there's like in like subsection this of this rule. You should know that this thing exists and that's why they made this right. call when you weren't aware of that. So I think there would be a level of that, but I tend to agree if it's just to just have the guy grovel to the media about you know, <laughs> about why he got it wrong, then it, it wouldn't be very useful. Yeah. No, I, I think that I think we're on the same page there. All right, last one's from Corey Oliver, and uh I, I think you're gonna love this one. Every year draft eligible players are favorably compared to current NHLers by hockey media people. This year, Shane Wright getting lots of Patrice Bergeron comparisons because of his 200-foot game. Is that fair, or does he project closer to Manny Malholtra Jeez, coming in hot here for that's, Corey Oliver? That, that's, those are two extremes. <laughs> uh, 
Nothing so, against Manny Malhotra. Great defensive player. No, but, he's a great you know, player. There's a difference between the overall impact there between Bergeron and Malhotra. Yeah, just a little bit. And when we had um, Shane right on our podcast beginning of the season, he also yeah. compared himself to Bergeron. And he said mm-hmm. that to several other media people. Clearly, he's had these talking points prepped. And... And I think they all do. I think you're going to hear a lot of players every year say they 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 try to be Jonathan Taves or Victor Hedman. Oh yeah, no, their their agents get them ready for the comp. When we're actually going to have a combine this year, it's going to be very exciting. And and you know, everyone's everyone, they're going to they're going to have like their little musical chair interviews, and they're all going to be asked the same ten questions. They're going to have the same ten answers prepped, and and yep. and I understand that. I don't like the Bergeron comp. Because I think Bergeron is an elite defensive player, and I've never seen Wright at that level. I think he is a really competitive player. I think he's good defensively. I don't think he's Bergeron, though. I think Bergeron is a very specific kind of player. The reason why Bergeron went in the second round, yep. because he doesn't. There's some certain aesthetics to his game that he lacked when he was 17, 18 years old. That he's obviously developed as time has gone on. The co- I have a comp for him that I'd be curious to get your opinion on. What do you think of a Mika Zibanejad comp, comp for Shane Wright? I, I do get that one. Now, here's here's what I do like about the burst run comp is that I, I've and this happens because I cover the Red Wings and I see a lot of people score a lot of goals uh, against the Red Wings. But Bergeron's <laughs> shot, especially from the slot area, I think does remind me a lot of the way the puck comes off of Shane Wright. Are, are, you, are you referencing the eleven two game from the other day? I, I, there's a lot of games I'm referencing right now, Corey. Uh, they've given up nine or more three times in the last month. But uh, yeah, I, I do. I get this advantage at one. I, I think that there's a lot there. I mean, I, I think ultimately what 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 comparables do for people is they're really just supposed to give you like a, a picture of what to expect, right? And, and what, with sure. both of those guys you just said, what you expect are yes, they're not blazing fast, but but they're they're centermen who can score and who are really detailed, and that is what Shane Wright is. And and ultimately, that's what an NHL team is going to like. And if you, if you took a guy at first overall and he becomes Mika Zibanejad, you're content with that. It's not Austin Matthews, but you're perfectly content with that. Yeah, I mean, you look at the second overall pick from last year, Matthew Beniers. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Yeah, we are. We are realistically expecting him to be better than Zibanejad. No, I don't think so. I, but but I think he's he's a really good second line center, and I think you know whether that's Nico Heischer went first overall. I think that's what, pretty much what Nico Heischer is, right? Like right. I but I just mean, I think like if I think you know whether he becomes Zibanejad level or below or whatever, I think yeah. you know that's a hell of a player. Zibanejad has a point of game center for the last couple of years, kind of thing. Plays all yep. situations. That's kind of why I went to him. Yep. Bergeron obviously has been there for a while too. Uh, Obviously, always been complimented by great scorers on that team as well. But uh, I think just Bergeron has won the cups and the, yeah. well, the cut the cup. Sorry, and and you know had a lot of playoff runs, right? Like it's you think of him as playoff winner. A lot of playoff runs, Selkie Trophy. Like that's why I I think that's high bar. But I, but I get where we're coming from with that one. All right, that is going to do it for us today. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. You can subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts and get bonus content from our entire network. It's going to start with a 30-day free trial, and it's going to be just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. We'll talk to you soon.